0: This is the Distinctly Detroit podcast, the only pod that explores why one wants to be in the D. I am your host, Fyodor Ship III, the director of the University of Michigan Detroit Center. Join me as I interview students, scholars, leaders, and innovators about living, working, and loving in Detroit. Today we are joined by a reporter, editor, and author, she has worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Philadelphia Daily News, and the New York Daily News. She moved to Detroit in 2014 and founded Chalkbeat Detroit, a nonprofit education news organization designed to untangle the complexities of school politics in Detroit, giving the people a voice. She is a University of Michigan alumna and the author of The Pages in Between. The DDP welcomes NBC News reporter Aaron Einhorn. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks
0: for having me. Yes, and we're sorry for not telling you it was on video, but (laughs) you look great and we're glad to have you here. Um, Curious, where are you originally from?
1: I'm originally from Oakland County. Okay. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. Okay,
0: I thought you were from the area. I couldn't find that exactly in your uh, bio stuff, but I was like, I remember we met before and you're originally from the area. So, what led you to move to Detroit?
1: Well, I was, you know, so I, yeah, I grew up in, I grew up in the Detroit area. I went to Michigan, and um, then blue. I go blue, and then I went to, I lived in Philadelphia. I lived in New York. Um, you know, it was, I was gone for 19 years, uh, and I, you know, I kept paying attention to Detroit. I kept watching what was happening in Detroit. I kept, you know, and, and you know, so in 2014, Detroit was actually in bankruptcy, yeah. um, and it just seemed. You know, there was, it seemed like there was, you know, I, I had actually been involved in a, in a group of, um, like, we called ourselves Detroit expats. So okay. I was, a bunch of us yeah. who were in New York were, we, you know, I was at, it was actually a, it was a Passover Seder that okay. I was at in New York City. And we were all from Detroit in, in various ways. And we'd all ended up there. Oh, um, cool. And we were all just talking about how, what it meant for Detroit that we were all from the area and none of us lived here. And we were all talking about how many of our friends from high school and college had left and were living in New York or LA or San Francisco or some other, Chicago, some other place, and, and talking about what that meant for Detroit in terms of philanthropy, in terms of, you know, talent, in terms of knowledge, in terms of investment. And so we were talking about what what would it look like to try to you know gather the you know resources of some of the detroit expat community and and redirect that toward detroit and so we had come here i came here with a group of us and i think it was like 2009 to oh, wow. meet with local folks okay. about oh if we were to found this organization you know what should it do should it raise money should it you know raise capital should it raise you know we, we ultimately ended up doing, like, we we were actually told, actually, there's plenty of philanthropy in Detroit, and we were told that what was needed was more like, you know, professional services and things like that, and so we ended up creating this remote volunteer program, where if you were an attorney, you could volunteer for a a Detroit organization that needed legal advice or, you know, marketing skills or things like that, and we... um, so just through that, I had been spending some time in Detroit, i have been thinking about Detroit, and it just really felt like a place where people were invested in the city, people really cared about it, people, it just, I felt when I was here on those, you know, visits, that it was, that if you lived in Detroit, you could be a part of something, yeah. you know, in a way that, I mean, I loved living in New York, I loved Philadelphia. They were cities where a lot of things, was, things were happening, but I felt like I was a consumer of those things, that I would just kind of absorb them. I would get to sort of, I would show up at, you know, oh, okay, this thing's happening at this time, I'd show up for that thing. Yeah. But it felt like in Detroit, people were building something and, and you know, people were, um, you know, just, you know, just, you know, the, 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 the folks who were here in 2009, you know, had been here through a lot of challenges through a lot of really tough years and they were here because they believed in it you know and because they believed in the city and its future and I it was just something that really like drew me you know I wanted to be a part of something too and so and I felt like this was where I belonged so that's why Um, You know, and I was living in an 800-square-foot apartment with a baby and a toddler (laughs) and a husband. You know, that was suboptimal. So,
0: (laughs) you know. know, As you mentioned, though, you've worked in some uh, really major markets. And how has Detroit been different from your other beats?
1: I mean, Detroit, you know, in in some ways, you know, what's happening in New York, what's happening in Philadelphia are very similar to what's happening in Detroit. And in some ways, they're completely different. You know, I mean, you know, you have – you know, a city, you know, a lot of the issues that are, a lot of the challenges facing cities that have to do with economic um, disinvestment and, um, you know, conflict, you know, ra- issues with racial inequity, you know, issues with, you know, obviously like gentrification, things like that. Um, you know, th- there's some common themes that you'll find, you know, pretty much in any older American city um but you know detroit i mean i mean detroit is such a unique place anyway you know there's very few places that are like detroit i mean like something like gentrification looks extremely different here than it does in new york you know um it it just everything plays out very differently and the you know the 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 depth of the disinvestment and the you know, racial disparities and the economic disparities and the, you know, the sort of the consequences of the segregation and all of that just kind of, just, you know, became so much deeper here. Um, You know, and so the challenges are so much greater in terms of how to, um, you know, bring Detroit back to to where it should be, um, you know, equitably. Um, So, yeah. <laughs> I'm no, rambling. It's I apologize. Yeah, no, no, you're fine. Yeah. You're fine.
0: So what has been a uh what can be considered a surprise for you since you've been back in the area or since you've been working in the area? A
1: surprise for yeah, me? Yeah, what have
0: you found like what has surprised you about the city and the goings on?
1: Well, I will say that when I was sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn and sort of looking at, you know, oh, I could live in Detroit, you know, you I had this idea that like that the cost of living was lower here, you know, (laughs) and that like, oh, in Detroit, you know, I'd get so much space, you know, like I could, you know, and in reality, it isn't true, right? Like you get to Detroit and, you know, you need a car to get around because the transit system's broken. And then you gotta get car insurance for that car. And then, you know, you gotta like replace the tires every couple of weeks in the winter because the roads are broken, you know, and, you know, so many, I mean, and even things like, you know, wanting to, you know, you gotta like drive to the suburbs to buy certain things, or you gotta, sh- you know, and, and so there's just certain, like, the cost of living here is much higher than than I thought it was would be. Um, and, you know, and, and to some extent, you know, like some of the city services are still, I mean, they're better than they were when I moved here in 2014, but, you know, some of the city services obviously are still not where they should be. Um, and a lot of stuff just doesn't work, you know, a lot of stuff's still just broken. Um, Need
0: some work, yeah. 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 So, what do people get wrong about Detroit? What do people get wrong about Detroit
1: nationally? I mean, I think, I mean, when you see the national narrative about Detroit, you know, it falls into these like, I mean, you'll see these stories about, oh, you know, the Detroit comeback, you know, and it'll be like pictures of like the downtown or the Whole Foods, you know. (laughs) Uh, And then you get like the other kind of Detroit story that is sort of like, you know this, like oh, there, oh, there's two Detroits. You know, you have white Detroit and black Detroit, or rich Detroit and poor Detroit, and this you know. And there's not two Detroits. There's a thousand Detroits. There's two hundred thousand Detroits. There's a million Detroits. There's so many. You know, this is a city of so many different neighborhoods. Yeah. And within each neighborhood, each block is so different. You know. And so it's really hard to make any kind of blanket statement about a city that is this big and this vast and this diverse you know, and and faces so many different kinds of challenges in different parts of the city. And so I think that, I, I mean, I, it's probably true of any city that you can't really, like, make some kind of blanket statement mm-hmm. about what its essence is. But, you know, there's just, yeah, there's just so many different parts about this Detroit that make it very, you know, that I think people get, a, people get it wrong a lot.
0: Because it's a lot to get wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's a no, lot to get wrong. I get it. Uh, what, what led you to focus your reporting on education?
1: Mm, Well, I covered education in New York. Um, I had, so I had covered, so when I, when I worked for the New York Daily News, uh, my first beat there was the New York City public school system, which is the largest public school system in the country. So I got really interested, and I, and I really enjoyed covering education because, when you cover education, you're never covering just education, no. right? You're covering economics, and finance, and equity, and race, and religion, politics. and culture, and unions, and politics, and labor, and government. And it's so many, you know, and it's, like, it, it's really, honestly, covering a political campaign. And especially at the time when I was covering schools in New York, it was sort of the center of a lot of, like, the charter schools versus, you know, a, you know, a lot of those sorts of tensions. Um, and so just, I just really enjoyed that beat. Um, and then when I moved to Detroit, most, you know, I wanted to write for national publications about Detroit. And most of the journalists here um, who were doing that work were obviously covering the bankruptcy because that was huge. And they were covering blight because that was huge. They were covering housing because it was so obvious. You know, you would drive around the streets of Detroit yeah. and you'd see blighted housing. And so you would want to write about it. And nobody was really covering the schools in any kind of significant, for the national media. I mean, obviously the Free Press had some education reporters, although, you know, they, the Free Press at one point, I think, had eight education reporters covering schools across the state. And by 2014, when I moved here, I think it was down to two, with one covering, like, Detroit schools and one covering the whole other rest of the state. Um, And I moved here with as I said, a baby and a toddler, right? And I moved into the city, and I was determined to find a way to, you know, educate, find a quality education for my children in this city. And I knew that the schools were extremely challenged. Um, And I was just trying to navigate the school system for my own family, and I would Google a school, and I couldn't tell if it was even still open. So many schools had shut down in such a short, under emergency management, so many schools had shut down in such a short, fashion that I couldn't even figure out what was open and what was closed because like the website sometimes was still up. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, like there was the EAA and there were charters and there were district schools and I just didn't understand the difference. And I would Google stuff and I would look stuff up in the papers and there just wasn't very much coverage. Hmm. And it was really very, very difficult to, to sort of navigate it for my own purposes. And I was like, well, this isn't right. Because like in New York, there's all these different, you um, uh, news sites that specifically cover schools I and mean, yeah. there was one where you could put in any school in this and were at the time 1600 schools in New York City and you could look up any one of them and there was this website where you could look up the school and see not just like the test scores and the demographics you could see like almost like Yelp reviews, you know, of the school, and there'd be like a little narrative and a reporter had gone out and visited the school and interviewed teachers and interviewed parents and wrote, oh, this is a small school with this history. And I thought, you know, I'm here in the city. Detroit has more school choice than almost any other city in the country. I mean, there's, you are not, you could go to, you know, any given parent in the city of Detroit could send their child potentially to... You know, if you had transportation, potentially, you know, hundreds of schools, right? You can yeah. go into the suburbs, you can go to the charters. And yet, how do you make those decisions if you, if there's, if you don't have any informational resources? Um, which is ultimately how and why I started Chalkbeat Detroit in Detroit as a, as a way. Chalkbeat um, is a network of local news sites covering education in different cities. Yeah. And I had moved to Detroit, and I thought, well... I needed this information, and so lots of other parents probably did too. Uh, and educators needed information about the schools where they were working, and you know, and just people, policymakers, citizens. The schools are so important, and I wanted to be able to um, help them get information about schools and schools that were going through, you know, a really you know significant change, and and you know, a lot of things are happening
0: still yeah lots yeah. yeah my producer and i argue about schools a lot he's a big proponent of charters and i'm a public school educated kid myself all the way through And so i'm not a big fan of charters uh, if i may what decision did you end up making for your children
1: uh i mean my kids are in the public school system uh okay. i mean my daughter went to went to one public school, school. <laughs> she went to one school yeah. for a couple of years and it didn't work out and we went to a different school and um both my kids are you know and, it, you know, it's been it's been really, you know, challenging in terms of, um, you know, how to find the right, the right, because, you know, all the schools in a lot of ways in Detroit, you know, don't have the resources they should. And that, you know, obviously that was really laid bare during the pandemic. Um, I mean, it had been laid bare before the pandemic, but the pandemic, you know, really just, you know, made it so much more complicated Um, And just all the, you know, all the different needs, you know, all the needs that different families had even before became so much more intense. And um, the schools were one of the only institutions that were serving the needs of children. Um, And then they were closed. Almost all the schools in Detroit were essentially closed for a year and a half. My kids, you know, my daughter didn't go to school for, yeah, a year and a half at all. I mean, she was in this remote school, which you know, it was fine for her in some ways, but you know, also really not, no, No, No.
0: okay. Um, Question, I I need to, um, I just thought of something. I have to, I have a story idea for you later. I have someone for you to meet. who, a professor at U of M Dearborn, who has a project called the Best Classroom Project. Oh, yeah, I know
1: uh, her. I was part of that? Oh, I good. was part of that, yeah. Oh, Some cool. Okay. In fact, yeah. when I moved so, to Detroit, one of the first things I did was connect up with the Best Classroom Project, and I went on tours with them. Okay. Oh. Well, um, and see, started touring schools. Small yeah. city. See, I love it. I love it. You already know city. That is Professor that, Dara Hill, for yeah, our listeners, yeah. in case you didn't know. <laughs> I
0: had the pleasure of going to high school and undergrad with her, so... That is um, really cool that you did that. So, uh, one of the things I was curious about is, as a writer, uh, what do you? I mean, what inspires you to write? Uh, what, what do you deri- How do you derive your inspiration? Because you're not just, you're just not a reporter. You're an author as well. So you've written a book, and uh, how, what is your writing style?
1: Um, Well, that's two different questions. All right, well, let's see. Uh, What inspires my... I don't know. I mean, I don't know. What (laughs) inspires... I mean, you know, I just feel like... I mean, I see stuff happening, and I, you know... I mean, for me, I actually... I really like reporting, because I get to go out and talk to people and ask them, you know, and I was like... You know, and I, I wasn't a very good student, you know, for the most part, mostly because I can't... I mean, I have, you know, I have ADHD, right, and I can't... I can't like sit down and like read an academic paper you know I mean I can try I can read the you know you know okay you got to read the summary and the extract when you know whatever and I you know I have to to do that but I like that I can then call up the author of the study and say tell me about that study you know because I you know I'm I that's how I learn and I love you know and so what's great about reporting is this opportunity to really call people up and ask them about anything you know Mm -hmm. tell me your story and people I mean, people have amazing stories when you stop and listen. Um, and, uh, you know, so for me, and I'm, you know, I'm always just, and then, you know, I'll find something out, and I'll be like, wait, what? No, no, that can't be right, you know? Um, and, then, and then you're like, well, how do I, you know, how do I tell that story in a way that's going to make people care about it? You know, that's going to, you know, especially when you find out something that doesn't feel right, that's in, that feels like an injustice. And I, you know, and you kind of feel like, well, if people knew about that, they would put an end to it, which doesn't always work out. Like, you kind of, you kind of hope that your work's gonna have so that if impact. If only they knew. If only know. they knew. Um, but I do think, you know, ultimately, like, over time, you know, change is slow. But, you know, if, if I can tell the right story in the right way and get it before the right audience, that maybe it can, you know, at least influence policy in a positive way uh, and have some kind of a, you know, positive influence on it. Um, That was the first part of the question. What was the second part of the question?
0: Uh, How would you describe your writing style? Oh,
1: my writing style. I would describe my writing style as like, you know, stream, like just blah. I put it all out there and then I try to organize it.
0: Okay. Get (laughs) it out first. Structure. I actually,
1: in fact, if I'm like having trouble writing a story, I sit down and I just start typing, and I'll just start writing whatever comes to my mind. Sitting here, I need to come up with a lead for the story. I I don't know how I can, you know, what's the lead? What should I write about? And then I just start writing. You know, you just, I just start like I'll start writing scenes, or you know, like you know. like I, I was out reporting and I saw this thing and I'll sort of write that scene. Okay. And then you know sometimes it ends up being the lead scene and sometimes it ends up later on in the story. That's pretty cool. Scene. Sometimes it ends up just you know slashed and gone and but I just sort of just keep writing until I have a story.
0: Okay. Do you journal? Do I all?
1: journal a little bit? I used to like in high school and college <laughs> I journaled. Okay. Um, now I don't quite as much as I but every, you know. I I I try to, you know.
0: Keep track of things. What advice would you have for an aspiring writer, um, either a reporter or author?
1: Just write. I mean, that's the thing about. I mean, well, the beauty of writing is that it doesn't cost anything to write. You know, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't have to be good, right? Like people are like, oh, I can't write. It's too bad. But it's also like you know, like you. I mean, I, I wouldn't sing in public because I wouldn't do that. To the, I mean, I really, I mean, I cannot keep a tune. Yeah. But I sing in the shower, you know, so like yeah. I, you know, so, or I sing, you know, at home, I sing in the car. My kids are always like, you know, like I'm singing along to the radio. And my kids are like, Mommy, please stop. And I'm like, no, I like, you know, because it's, you know, so I mean, and the thing about writing is that, yeah, it's just, you, you just do it, you know, um, do it for posterity. Do, I mean, and I, you know, like you mentioned my book. My book is a family history. It's, you know, I went, my mother was a Holocaust survivor. She was a hidden child uh, in Poland. And I went back essentially to fact check my family folklore and I lived in Poland for a year. And I, in the process, found all these letters that people had written and they were so valuable. So if like, so what I would say is like, write if nothing else. To build that historical record, you know, to 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 write down what you're seeing, and people always think like, oh, nobody cares about me, or no one cares about somebody like me, or some somebody you know in my situation, right? And they think like, oh, well, you know, I'm not a I'm not a president, or I'm not a governor, or I'm not I don't have you know, but ultimately, like when you do historical research, you know, I mean, certainly the archives of the president and the governor are important, but like that, like on the ground, like. Like a journal. I mean, I did a story um, last year about the Burwood Wall, um, with the segregation wall in, in northwest Detroit. And I wanted to go back and write and, and like find people who lived on both sides of the wall. Um, and ultimately, I found this memoir of, that was written by this woman who had lived in that neighborhood her entire life, or most of her life. And she'd written nobody, you know, and the, the memoirs like at the Burton Historical Library in Detroit, you know, it's not something you would like, you know, find, you know, I mean, actually, I, you know what, actually, it's, I bought it on Amazon, so you can buy it on Amazon, okay. but, um, but it's not, you know, it's like an obscure thing. But because she said, you know, she knew that her story was important yeah. and she sat down and she wrote this story and, and, uh, and if she hadn't. You know, I wouldn't have been able to discover that for my reporting in, in 2021. You know, so it's so, uh, yeah, my only advice for writers is just write whatever you have to say, you know, whether it's journaling or, or letters to your children or to your friends or if it's an email. It doesn't have to be perfect penmanship, but like put it down.
0: Put it down. Get it out. Make
1: a record. Yeah.
0: yeah. That was one. Of, I was a history major in undergrad. One of my favorite things about the way the professors taught history was, it was a very top-down. They'd give you the, you know, the papers for the president and the governors, whatever, but they'd also have you read letters from the small towns and things going on, so you got a really good perspective of those big high points in American history, but also you get a feel what the everyday man was going through and how life was affected by, how those policies trickled down Mm -hmm. to regular people, and I found that that was one of my favorite parts of history. I majored. It felt like it was story time every time mm-hmm. I went to class. So that is a really good idea. Um, one of the things I know I really was uh, intrigued about and excited about and reading over your bio and your history is you've seen you won a lot of awards. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. I'm just curious to you know what's been your proudest work so far. I know, tough one. I mean, you know. (laughs) If there's anything. I'm,
1: I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, probably, I'm probably the book, you know. I mean, I mean, the book, the book, it was a very personal story. So therefore, I think I was, I mean, I, you know, I invested years of my life in it. And, you know, it was telling my mother's story um, and my family's story. And I, and honestly, it's the story that inspired, I mean, I actually, the first time I told, the story, my family's Holocaust story was for my high school newspaper, the West Bloomfield High School Spectrum. Uh, And it won like state high school, you know, journalism awards. And it was that moment where I was like, oh, right, like you can take this story and you can tell it in a way that's gonna, you know, engage people. And then I always, you know, wanted to kind of go back and yeah, fact check it and and tell it in sort of a larger story. Uh, and, and what I, you know, and, and it wasn't just, I wasn't just telling the story from World War II, I was telling the story, I mean, I lived in Poland in 2001, and I was telling the story about what what it looked like to go back at that time, you know, what sort of, you know, what, you know how, how the Jewish history of Poland was remembered by the Polish people in 2001. You know, and of course I was there on 9-11, and so yeah. I like watched, I watched nine eleven I watched like video of the towers falling from a bar in Krakow with a room full of people who had spent the day at Auschwitz, because like Auschwitz is the biggest tourist hey. attraction in Krakow, yeah. and I'm mean, just, imagine spending the day at Auschwitz, and then coming back to your hotel and looking at the TV and seeing the towers falling, and yeah. you're just like, and this sort of connection between, you know, sort of, that war from the past and this one that you know is about to begin, yeah. and ultimately last twenty years, you know. Wow. That,
0: yeah. That's got to be proud. Auschwitz is on my bucket list, the place to visit in life. Again, I'm a history major, <laughs> so I, I want to see that stuff. Uh, so, what's up next for you? Are you having any other books in the works, or any other things like that? Any stories you're chasing? can we scoop the national media here on the DDP <laughs> I mean you know
1: I'm I'm working on a couple of stories right now I'm actually doing a fellowship uh, next year through Columbia uh, University the Spencer Education Journalism Fellowship okay. and I'm going to be focusing on issues of exclusionary discipline in schools so suspension and expulsion and okay. you know what it looks like you know what what happens in the lives of kids when they are exposed to that kind of discipline and you know how that intersects with mental health um, you know student mental health uh, youth mental health and um, hopefully looking at programs that are doing a more effective job because obviously we know that there's significant problems with suspension and expulsion you know you know really contributing you know there's all there's extensive research on what happens to kids who are suspended and expelled. And they, you know, they're far more likely to drop out of school, far more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. You know, that kind of discipline is is grossly disproportionate, you know, really affecting in particular, you know, black and Hispanic, usually boys. Yeah, with mental, with like ADHD, you know, like I have, like my kids have, right? Like the, you know, kids with special needs, um, you know, really, Disproportionately subjected to that, and and really, dif- you know, really just, whole, you know, terrible consequences emerge from it. So I just want to really look at that issue and look at what we could do differently.
0: That's... Okay. That sounds like that's, that's, that's be my good next work. big project. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, we're going to transition now to what we call our lightning round. All this right. is where we okay. we ask all of our guests a series of questions that are pretty <clears> much <throat> the same, and it's mainly about, you know, being in Detroit and your experiences in Detroit and around that stuff. But the first question is, how do you practice self-care?
1: How do I practice? I run. I walk the dog every day, you know. Jo- you know, I spend a lot, I spend as much time outside as I can, uh, particularly since the pandemic. Oh, I think I'm speaking too much for a lightning round. No, no, okay. you're, no, you're, <laughs> no you're I try fine. to spend time outside. <laughs> okay.
0: uh, what are you reading?
1: I'm actually currently reading a. Um, uh, it, it's. A, a, a former colleague of mine in Philadelphia um, broke the Jeffrey Epstein story, and she just wrote okay. a book called "Perversion of Justice," and it's sort of her story about how she, you know. So it's oh, sort wow. of, you know, it's, I'm not particularly interested in Jeffrey Epstein, but I, you know, this it's, was a, that a
0: story. Is, yeah, especially you know someone who wrote it. Yeah, yeah,
1: so it's and it's just kind of fun to sort of hear the story behind that story. It's sort of like it's investigative reporter, <laughs> you know. You like to read every, how everybody, everybody how oh, they get does. that story. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's
0: cool. What are you listening to?
1: Oh, mostly a lot of podcasts i don't you know, yeah, I mean, you know, like i said i'm in the like I'm in the car with my kids, and like I'm listening to sing too in the car with the kids and, oh, and the Encanto soundtrack, but um yeah when i when I'm, when I'm by myself i'm mostly yeah I, I listen to the moth okay. um this American life.
0: NPR stuff. Yeah. Okay, you yeah. gotta add the DDP to your list.
1: Oh, I, I will add DDP. Yeah, <laughs> I listen to you know like WDET Detroit mm-hmm. Today. You know, like I do. I I listen to a lot of local radio, mostly public radio.
0: Okay, NPR. I love NPR myself. Mm-hmm. What are you watching?
1: What am I watching? Um, I just I we were just watching I, the um, Mrs. Maisel. What's that called? Marvelous, I, Mrs. Marvelous Maisel. Mrs. Maisel, which I have some issues with, but it's pretty funny. This is us. It's not okay. I'm not all that like creative. I don't have anything like crazy. It's just like my.
0: Yeah. If you have Netflix and haven't checked it out, but Becoming Anna. Oh, yeah. I think got me thinking investigative journalism. That's a, this is a right. story of the journalist who broke her story. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Where do you like to go out to eat in the city?
1: I, well, my birthday is this weekend, and we're All gonna right. have brunch at Coriander. 27 again, yeah. Yeah, well, a little more than that, yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're gonna have brunch with the whole family at Coriander Kitchen. And okay. it's gonna be springtime finally, I think. The, I, you know, they've got this great location down on the canals on the east side.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, happy early birthday. Thank you very much. Uh, if you were, you know, before COVID and going out and socializing in the city, where do you like to go socialize?
1: Where do I socialize in the city? I mean, honestly, the playground in my neighborhood is where I. Go. I mean, actually, but pre-pandemic, and I live, yeah, you know, I live in Lafayette Park. It's this okay. great neighborhood, and you know, pre-pandemic, every Friday night we'd all be out on the playground. We would get pizza, and we would like put out, figure out how many. We'd get a head count, and somebody would buy the pizza, and you know, we'd have like a, we had an oatmeal container that you put your cash in, um, <laughs> and. Uh, and, and, it, and, like, you know, yeah, people would bring beer or wine, and it would just be, like, this, like, standing block party. Uh, and I really hope that comes back this year because I've missed it.
0: That sounds really awesome. Uh, if a friend of yours is coming to town, what is something they absolutely have to do while they're here in Detroit?
1: I, you know, I always take them down to the river. Riverwalk. I like I said, I'm a runner, so you know, Decatur Cut, Riverwalk. Um, you know, it, yeah, it's it's been so long. Honestly, it's like it's like, oh man, what do we do? Like before the pandemic, but yeah, like DIA, of course. You know, you got to go see the murals, uh, the frescoes. Um, what are my other big Detroit spots? I mean, I always walk them into the lobby of the Guardian Building. Okay. Which I actually saw the first time since was this is a U- University of Michigan podcast. Yes. My senior year. I took a history of Detroit class okay uh, in the residential college uh, and I, he took us into the city I can't remember if we took a van or we all drove or something, but okay. he walked us into the lobby of the Guardian building and he said, "Look up and you could see that you could see the ambitions of this city you could see how. The people of Detroit saw themselves. I don't know what year that building was built. Maybe yeah. I don't know the twenties. Maybe, yeah, and like that, that you know, you, and it was you know at a time when Detroit was just exploding in size. You know, Detroit tripled in size between 1910 and 1930, and there was just so much money and so much wealth and so much so much hopes and dreams and people coming from everywhere, you know, Great Migration and like Eastern Europe and escaping pogroms and like they're all coming here with this great dream and like it was all kind of manifested on the ceiling of the Guardian Building. And I remember now, you know, what, 30 years later, 25 years later, I remember that speech and I tell, I repeat that speech whenever I have visitors come to town and I take them into the Guardian Building and I tell them to look up.
0: I'm gonna have to go back to the Guardian, building. <laughs> okay. Uh, last question is, where can we find you?
1: I mean, I'm yeah, I'm a reporter for NBC News. Uh, you can find my work on NBCNews.com. Uh, mostly, that's where. <laughs> Mostly that's where you'll find me. you find me on this podcast. You can watch this over and over and over again.
0: (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you for joining us today. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Aaron Einhorn, NBC reporter. Uh, I want to thank you for coming in today. Really appreciate seeing you again, fellow East Quarter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wasn't in the RC, but I lived in East Quarter for three years. So, uh, again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This has been the latest episode of the Distinctly Detroit podcast. You can get us wherever you get your pods. Please subscribe, rate, and like, uh, and uh, tune in next time. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Distinctly Detroit podcast. This is a production of the University of Michigan Detroit Center, and you can find us anywhere you get your pods. Please rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is directed and produced by Marlon Franklin edited by Taylor Henniger, with writing contributions by James Neely and Leah Allen. Thank you for listening.